0: We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land throughout Australia on which we are recording. We pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging. Hello and welcome to the Doyen Interviews, the podcast that speaks to inspiring women from the art, architecture and design world. I'm Bridget Nathan and I'm glad you've tuned in. Thank you also to Anon for the beautiful introductory music. Um, Okay, so hello and welcome to the next guest of the Doyen Interviews podcast. I've got Claire Martin, who is a landscape architect and an associate director at Oculus, who are a bit of an international um, organisation. So they've got offices in Australia and also in the United States. This interview actually took place during the first Melbourne lockdown, and I can't believe there's another one. So... Thanks, Claire, for your time. Um, how are you going? <laughs> I'm, uh, yeah,
1: I'm very good and thanks for the invitation. Uh, yeah, it's been a really busy period but, yeah, just um, just completing a, a big bid on a health project. So, yeah, good to be getting to that milestone, I think.
0: Oh, amazing. Is the project based in Melbourne? Uh,
1: yes, yeah, so it's the, it, would, it would be for the New Fitzroy Hospital, actually.
0: Oh, amazing. Um, good luck. <laughs> um, so what, um, what is your role? Could you explain a little bit about what you do? Yeah so, I, yeah, so as you said,
1: I work at Oculus, so we do landscape architecture and urban design. We've got studios in Sydney, Washington and Melbourne. Um, so I guess alongside Bobo, I lead the and direction of the studio in Melbourne in particular um, and we work on projects that sort of range in scale from sort of strategic um, policy kind of planning um, and right the way through down to sort of gardens and infrastructure, health, uh, cultural sort of cultural and arts projects. So quite a broad range of projects. Um, I also have, I guess I wear a few different hats. So I'm also a director of the Australian Institute of Landscape Architects, which is something I'm very passionate about. Um, And then, yeah, have different kind of roles in terms of design review roles for the Office of the Victorian Government Architects and also contributing editor to Landscape Australia. So I think all of those different kind of roles are all part of my practice.
0: They sound like some pretty um, cool organisations to be involved with. Um, How did you first get into landscape architecture? Did you study it in university? Was it something that you were always interested in? Uh,
1: yeah I think that's a really good question. Um, I think actually originally in, from the UK where I studied English literature and fine final so quite a different oh, cool. yeah quite a different background but something that I guess uh, gave me quite a good sort of foundation in critical thinking um, and I guess certainly a good basis from a design perspective and then when I came to I was doing some work in Sydney and I ended up Um, in more of an administrative role but actually working for the Olympic Coordination Authority which was delivering the Sydney Olympics in 2000. So that really sort of opened my mind to in particular public domain projects um, and in particular probably the politics of space and what it means to engage in the public realm and that sort of started me thinking about yeah different things that I might like to do and then I ended up sort of moving to Melbourne where I actually worked for a trade union for a very long time which was obviously more sort of around social justice Um, and then I just really got into yeah I guess thinking more about architectural design in different ways I had a roof garden and I think a few things just came together I did some part-time study and then I was encouraged to do um, what was then a four-year degree so that is pretty much how I kind of fell into landscape architecture in many ways.
0: Yeah oh what um, an interesting and unique career path, Um, I really liked um, some of the key words that you were talking about, um, such as the politics of space. Um, What do you mean by that? What sort of um, issues came up or what sort of, like, concepts were you dealing with in that time? Um,
1: I think a lot of it was, I mean, it could have been anything from, I think, understanding there was quite a lot of um, community opposition, for example, to hosting the volleyball on Bondi Beach, and that was a lot to do with, you know, maintaining access to what is an amazing public asset, the beach. Um, also, concerns about how that may have environmental impact. So that was another kind of consideration. Um, there were also lots of things to do with the integration of programs and art into the city. Uh, so just understanding what it means to actually, I guess, you know, art in, in a gallery context is quite different to putting art in a public context. Um, the idea is, yeah, I guess who who gets to access those events? And I think in many ways, uh, the Olympics is really, you know, it has its, I guess people we'll, will criticise it in terms of the infrastructure spend, but it's really about trying to create a legacy for the city. So I think Sydney Olympics was perceived to be very successful, and I think it brought lots of new architecture, infrastructure, um, and events sort of overlays to the city. So I think it's just understanding that everything we do in a landscape sense is really contested because we're always dealing with a a land that obviously has a deep history, both ecologically and culturally. So I think it's just understanding, yeah, that we're always operating. And I certainly think the way that I always consider um, design is that it is a cultural um, form of cultural production and that that has, you know, it has pluses and minuses in terms of what it does for the environment. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. And so thinking about that sort of um, those sorts of things in regard to um, landscape architecture, um, I mean, landscape architecture is a very broad profession and I'm sure there are a lot of things that you can do within it. Um, Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, could you explain a little bit about, um, yeah, what a landscape architect does um, and sort of the different types of roles that you could go into?
1: Absolutely, so I think as you said it is a very broad profession so it can be you know in some ways some people Do specialize other people are quite generalist in terms of their um the vocation So I think that certainly our Institute represents members who are students graduates their researchers academics um, That might be private practitioners people who work in government so a landscape architect could be involved in the designing and planning, but they can also be involved in the procurement projects so it's really um, quite, yeah, quite broad thinking in terms of you might do very strategic projects that are really to do with um, anything from, could be vegetation, could be more towards urban design, could be to do with placemaking, um, it could have more of an ecological focus, um, but then it can work right the way through to being really tectonic and about, um, you know, the integration of infrastructure. Um, so I think it's just really understanding that landscape architecture sort of occurs across different scales. Um, and there's lots of different ways that you can kind of resonate with people. So I think the way that I try and, I guess one way of looking at it is that we're really trying to create great places that are in some ways with nature, but also for nature. And that I guess in terms of our work at Oculus, we're really interested in connecting people with their environment, but also connecting people with each other. So I think they're kind of drivers for landscape architects. Um, and then I certainly think um, we're sort of coming full circle in terms of there being a really strong um, ecological focus and certainly in terms of biodiversity and integrated water management and that's obviously in the context of um, needing to really respond and respond at pace to the significant risks associated with climate change so I think we're really um, you know in many ways having to consider how we can start to create more climate positive design and that really means you know lowering the carbon emissions that are, are actually implicated in the projects that we do but also looking at how we can sequester carbon and actually start to have a really positive impact on the systems that our projects are connected to. So they could be obviously to air, water, land, um, and as I said, biodiversity. Mm,
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah. I I feel like with landscape architecture, there's, uh, and the same with architecture, but with landscape, it sort of feels like there's a lot of things that happen and a lot of design thought that goes into our cities and the way that we use things but it's not always obvious um Mm. and yeah like our our parks or our streetscapes or um you know those sorts of urban environments that we use every day um uh you know someone's obviously thinking about all of that in a lot of detail but it's yeah um it's it's not like a not always like a building that you know. Mm. It's you see it from start to finish, and you can um, conceptualise how that has maybe been designed or yeah.
1: constructed.
0: <laughs> um, so at Oculus, what's um, uh, what sort of projects are you working on at the moment? Is there one um, like sort of project you could talk a little bit about as an example?
1: Uh, yeah, well, we've got a, one that um, we've just finished working on, which we've been working on for probably about five or six years, which is associated with the Collins Arch development. So that's a, a Bus and City of Melbourne collaboration to really ensure that uh, you have a really sort of high, um, highly permeable ground plane. So we've created some three-site links. So this is located, I should say, on the corner of William Street and Collins in the centre of Melbourne. Um, oh, cool. And so it's really sort of a whole city block. So it's really about, I guess, the balance of working from a developer perspective of of, pub, of developer contributions to create public space and that the park that we've designed in collaboration with the city uh, is yes, handed back to the City of Melbourne. So it's really creating high levels of public amenities. Also been looking at uh, the ecological value of the site in terms of Green Star um, rating pool. Um, and then it has... And also a well rating, so it's got um, a wellness association in terms of integrated water features, access to nature. So lots of sort of layers of both program and use. And then there's informal kind of water play within the park. So the park will open uh, July, August, and the of Arch is already now open. So that was that was a really interesting collaboration with Woods Bagot and Shop Architects from the US. Uh, so a really good example of integrated design. So that's one we're about to finish and I think it, for me it's interesting because it is public but it's also private and it's really trying to blur the boundary in a positive way um, and make that part of the city as accessible as possible. Um, and we've also got to a community consult- consultation stage on a project called Seafoers West which is the, will be the latest park for Melbourne. So another collaboration with the City of Melbourne and Developers River League. So so really I'm very interested in yeah how we can really maximize i guess urban ecology opportunities and uh, passive and active recreation, so we're you know working in increasing contested spaces in terms of space, and actual um, ability to create open space open space is also diminishing um, quite a lot globally so um, and having equitable distribution of public open space is something I'm really interested in as well
0: yeah. Oh, that sounds great. Um, I, yeah, I'm not overly aware of what's um, happening in Melbourne in terms of development and it's very exciting to hear that we're getting some more parks because that's mm-hmm. definitely something that I know I've struggled with as a city worker, um, just physically not having somewhere mm-hmm. to sit that's, yeah, in walking distance. Um, it's Flagstaff Gardens um, when I used to work in the city it was just too far away um, and, yeah, it feels a bit built up. Um, from my perspective, what um, are some of the uh, benefits of having these sorts of environments in our cities? Do you you think, um, like I think you sort of touched on some of them, but um, like I guess to expand a little bit, to you, um, how do you feel Melbourne is operating in terms of having um, open green spaces? Do you think that, um, yeah, we could... Um, we could have more or, um, yeah, what sort of benefits did those sorts of environments um, offer us?
1: Yeah, I think that's um, another good question. I think Melbourne is very fortunate in terms of its planning in a colonial context um, From in terms of retaining and enhancing anything from Royal Park, which was retained as a bushland reserve, to um, large areas of domain. So understanding that that was obviously done as part of a Colonial settlement, but I think that it did sort of um, earmark land for public open space as well as all the parks, like the ones you mentioned in terms of Treasury Gardens, Flagstaff Gardens. So there is a quite a there was a quite a strong language in the formation of Melbourne of open space. But having said that, we're obviously one of a very dense city, one of the fastest urbanising cities in the world. Uh, so I think the, we can always have more. And I think that as you start to have density, you start to have overshadowing, you have increased wind, you have a reduction in access to sunlight. So they're all things that then compromise the experience of landscape. So I think it's not just about having more, it's about having um, an equitable distribution to open space. It's about having good quality open space. And so that means... You know, it can't just be municipal. It's got to operate to serve the interests of the environment, both in terms of um, the capacity to reduce urban heat island effects, uh, the capacity to um, introduce essentially nature into the city. So I think the city of Melbourne has got some really good policies on urban forest, or, uh, the urban forest strategies, nature in the city strategies. So I think the value of um, introducing landscape into the city operates. Both for the city and for that bigger sort of um, bigger catchment in terms of biodiversity and water. Um, it also has a significant value in terms of people's psychological well-being. So we have lots and lots of research to suggest that even 20 minutes of contact with natural or natural environments even if they're constructed landscapes can have really positive outcomes in terms of immunity and well-being it can help to reduce social isolation um, and anxiety can uh, also obviously create great physical um, health opportunities so the ability to exercise outdoors but also to connect with people as you're doing that um, can certainly reduce yeah childhood anxiety um, and mean there's certainly issues around nature deficit disorder and people lacking that connection to the outdoors i think certainly in Australia children in particular are spending less and less time outdoors so i think the idea of having um, accessible landscapes and also, I guess, even the inclusion of landscapes, whether they're on rooftops, so they can sometimes still have benefits if they're visually accessible and not always physically accessible. So you can green facades, green, green walls. Um, so there's lots of different way, ways that landscape is being introduced into the city and in particular, around the idea of living infrastructure and green infrastructure, which is really thinking about the projects that we all work on as multi-purpose and regenerative, so they're not um to the plan of that kind of infrastructure actually layering up ways that we can improve and enhance our environment through cons- through design and construction which is not always the case.
0: Mm, yeah. And um to achieve these sorts of things what are some of the challenges you face um uh, as like uh, landscape architects for example um are you do you find that sometimes in you know in the same ways in other design professions you have um you know really great ideas and really great schemes but um it comes down to the budget or um comes down to um you know maybe organizational or political changes um or perhaps um you know not having the same ideas on a project as um other consultants um like what what are some of the challenges um, for landscape architects to realise, um, yeah, mm. like some, some projects?
1: Yeah, I think I think certainly we're not immune as a profession or as a discipline to having some of those challenges or frustrations. I think we're certainly now operating in a context where the value of landscape or the perception of the value of landscape is shifting. So I think that ultimately it starts with that. So we really need people... Um, who are procuring projects, briefing projects, funding projects, um, or even starting to imagine projects that they need to start from a place of understanding the value of landscape and what landscape architecture can do for the city or for the region. Um, so I think starting from a value proposition is really important and I think that's something that built environment design professionals have really got to try and, I think, work harder to reinforce Um, you know, to capture the public imagination. So that is something that we, I think, have an aesthetic responsibility for, that we need to reinforce through the work we do why what we do is important to ensure that we can protect and enhance our environment. So I think, um, you know, that can be done in many ways, but I think that's, that's the sort of fundamental starting point for me. I think the other challenge which I alluded to is that with... Uh, rapid urbanisation, we're just getting exceptional rates of change. So that means whether it's anything from the clearing of land to, as I said, increased density, increased population, um, infrastructure demand. So once you have that context, it means that you have to respond as a profession in in an accelerated way. And so I think that that is both good and bad because it means it's good in terms of people being forced to innovate quickly. And I think in many ways, we are, you know, seeing a level of ambition that is now growing in Australia, um, which is actually, you know, often can be ahead of government um, leadership on these issues. And certainly, from a climate perspective, I think that's evident. Um, so I think one of the challenges is, yeah, being able to keep up with that rate of change and pace. I think also the need to be able to retain the values that we have. So it's anything from Retaining habitats, stopping habitat fragmentation. So I think, from an urban ecology point of view, 30% of Australia's endangered species are actually located in cities. So we really need to work hard with board design discipline teams to actually retain and enhance those environments. Um, I think we're also, because of that speed, we're I find a really uh, quite a significant tension between people's growing understanding of the importance. Um, through the reconciliation process of acknowledging um, the long and continuing relationship Indigenous people have in this country to land, water, and seas, and that I think at the same time there's that um, acknowledgement, there's also the speed in, of the procurement process that makes meaningful engagement very difficult. So I see that as being something that I sometimes struggle with in um, in our practice, and I think it's something that we really need to be able to balance this um Speedy procurement of process with um, listening and deep sort of understanding, and that takes time. So, I would say that that's something I personally find quite challenging, Um, but it's obviously something that all the built environment professionals need to address and need to um, deal with. And I think it's also that, um, you know, everything that we do is, what I like to think that what we do has great value, it also has a consequence. So, we, you know, within the built environment, we are dealing with Um, a lot of extraction so we use a lot of concrete that's extracted from elsewhere we use a lot of soil so we just really need to work through the challenges that um that trying to design great places have in themselves on the environment and i know certainly our institute has made pledges in relation to climate um, emergency and um, biodiversity emergency um, and along with our allies, obviously, within the Architecture Institute and Engineering. Um, so I think it's just really one of the challenges. I don't find it difficult in terms of the way that we work with other consultants, but I do think that um, we need to work on educating um you know, at a university on a professional level in terms of how we can actually start to sort of move beyond multidisciplinary to transdisciplinary. So I think that's been discussed for a long time, but I still feel there is a degree of silo, siloed kind of approach and that we really need to work in particular from our perspective with engineers to actually, you know, to get green infrastructure and living infrastructure, we need actually to work together um, to, in particular with engineering disciplines, but also even with planners. So... I think there's a lot more work that all the design disciplines um, could do to work in a way that is actually, yeah, going to create meaningful change. So I think that would be another challenge um, and an opportunity. I think also, um, yeah, there's an urgency to decarbonising. So we can't, you know, we can't wait. So I think there is is, um, an ethical responsibility in all of our, types of practice to actually act with urgency and to communicate that to our clients and to our members or our colleagues, to our friends and to our families. Um, And probably the last challenge I was thinking of um, when I was reflecting (laughs) on this is um, probably that, you know, it's a bit of a deferred gratification. So, you know, some of the projects I've worked on can take five or 65 years plus to deliver some, you know, some projects that landscape architects work on. Take 25 years to deliver so I think it's um one of the amazing things about landscape is that it takes time to establish and it changes over time but like any um discipline that's associated with construction it can also take a long time so that's one of the things that I find <laughs> challenging all the there, but also deeply rewarding when you do finally get things realized
0: yeah yeah oh that makes sense um it's It's always interesting thinking about the future. Um, I think a few of my podcast interviews recently have touched on that and the conversations I've been having for the future ones I'm going to be mm-hmm. publishing this idea that um, as designers we're not thinking about tomorrow we're thinking about. Yeah, years in advance, and so therefore the environments that we're living in um, are a product of the past in some ways. Um, mm. But I guess yeah, landscape is sort of slightly different to that when you um, yeah when you're talking about um, things that are changing and growing and developing. Mm. Um, I find that so exciting. Um, so with your work um, with the um, the Institute of Landscape architect, um, yes. what, yeah, what does that involve? So is it similar to the Institute of Australian Architects? Is it a lot of advocacy that you're involved with?
1: Yeah, it is very similar. So I think we've probably got a broader base because we do have more, um, I would argue, more members who are student members, graduate members. Um, but I think, yeah, it's very similar in terms of advocating to government um, in particular about the value of landscape architecture. Opportunities for projects and, and strategy direction and funding, um, and also I guess we've got sort of different strategic pillars. So it could be anything from yeah advocacy to profile, which is really about you know conversations like the one we're having in terms of getting people to understand what landscape architecture is, but also what it can be. Um, so raising the profile um, through can be anything from the uh, recognition through our people people awards, but also project awards um, through media through just different levels of engagement with the community um and we also do so we have i guess strategies and we have developed position statements and guides for our members but also for our members um to engage with yeah with the public but also with clients um and then we've been doing so we put submissions in recently for the um, disaster recovery which royal commission which is covering bushfires but also we touch on other forms of um Climate-related threats to Australia, um, and we've been re-engaging uh, with the International Federation of Landscape Architects in particular in the Asia-Pacific region. So, really trying to build on the synergies that we have as a profession and some of the work that we're doing, um, and some of the challenges that we face um, in trying to respond to the significant threats of climate change. So, I think it's really, and we've also got um, probably I think very really strong for our institute is. Um, a fresh, which is really younger, younger leaders who are already um, yeah changing the way that people practice, coming up with you know different approaches to advocacy and profile and education. So we've really got a, a good cross section of people who are very passionate, who people who volunteered their time to develop our reconciliation action plan. So um, we also work on carbon positive design or climate positive design. So yeah, lots of advocacy, lots of engagement and outreach. Um, yeah. so read, and you know everyone who does participate in ALA is volunteering their time um, and I'd yeah, encourage people to get involved in whatever their own um, whether it's within their community or their professional association because I think we really need people to communicate the values that gone fire
0: yeah oh that sounds um, really interesting and yeah like um, some really enriching experiences that people could become involved in um what does it um how has it been with covid um has it been um has everybody in your office been working remotely are you um back in the office now or are you still
1: Uh, yeah well because in victoria we're not really able to go back into the office in full and certainly our studio is um is a lovely studio, but quite small. So we actually won't be able to have um, everybody back in the office at the same time for quite some time. So what we did was go pretty early on um, remote working. Uh, So everyone is set up to, yeah, to work remotely. Um, We don't have face-to-face meetings. We still do sort of site visits. Um, But we will, yeah, we have got a couple of people who are gonna find it hard to continue to work from home. So they'll work um, from the studio part time. And then our plan is, to, the return to work plan is to have sort of half half the people in the office. But I think that, you know, what we've sort of observed is much in line with the recent stats that came out this week, where I think a lot of people are really looking for um, almost like a hybrid kind of return to work. So something that allows them to still continue to work from home part time, but also to be in the studio also half the time. So I think, um, yeah, so I think it definitely comes with its challenges. I mean, I think we were fortunate that we were able to get it to work pretty easily from an IT perspective um but I think you know I think that our staff and my colleagues have worked exceptionally hard to keep things going and I think that you know there's, we've been really really busy so we're very fortunate to be busy and certainly trying to make the most of that opportunity um but I do think that yeah you do have a bit of a loss of productivity and so I think people have had to work harder to, do, to sort of maintain that and something I certainly really appreciate so I think um Yeah, I mean, I think it's forced us to use some of the software that we had in place that we weren't really maximising properly in terms of, you know, the logistics of virtual meetings and just some of the collaboration and sharing of um, information. So I think that's been a a definite and things that we'll carry through. Um, But I think, yeah, at times I think it has been a little bit isolating. So I think it's just something that we're mindful of and that certainly in Victoria with our recent spikes this week is something that we're going to have to really continue to work on I think
0: yeah um, I'm hearing a lot um, in the news and through talking to people that there's this sense that um, it felt like things were wrapping up and it was sort of solved. I feel like I've definitely had this idealistic view that it was, you know, like an event that happened and then then it's going to just stop. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, it's it's from what you're saying as well, it sort of sounds like your organisation is really considering that um, it's, yeah, it will be a transition back and it it, Mm. it may not go, yeah, it won't go go back to how it was. There will be um, a new way of functioning probably for quite some time. Um what do you think are some of the ways that um landscape architects gen, like sort of more broadly um do you think that this COVID period um will like cause change in, in your industry? Um do you mm-hmm. think that like in what like do you think that, that these are the effects of um yeah using more tech using the technologies more frequently um, and, you know, changing the way that we work. Do you, like, in what ways do you find that um, the landscape, the profession of landscape architecture will be adapting um, in yes. the future?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that in the short term, you know, we certainly surveyed our members and there were some, you know, a sort of cross-section of people being concerned about how this would impact their type of working environment um, also how it might impact on the type of projects that are starting to roll out or continue. So I think there may be some short term or there has been a little bit of short term impact, but we've also, um, you know, a few retrenchments so that we are aware of. But I think generally seems like people are still quite busy, which is really good. So I suppose in the short term, there's understanding there may be some financial impact and also, I guess, if we use the R oh, word, the recession. So I think COVID mm. and the, the recession that is the consequence of COVID is something that will have um, potentially far-reaching impacts, I think. But on the side, I think that the, I suppose what we're really trying to lobby for is that the sort of once-in-a-generation investment that's going to come out of this that is intended to stimulate the economy and to keep people employed, that we're really hoping that that gets um, invested in projects that are not... You know, not just road projects, but actually public infrastructure projects that actually lead to better um, better outcomes in terms of the environment, and as I've been saying, I guess our adapt capacity to adapt to climate change. So, I think in um, hopefully in the sort of short to long term, one of the positives of this may be that we start to see greener investment, and certainly there are some um, some. Of announcements this week in terms of uh, the Reserve Bank and its relationship to overseas um, banks and they're really trying to risk, um, assess the risk and the financial risk of not doing anything about climate change. So I think certainly from a professional point of view, the involvement of landscape architects in helping find solutions to mitigate risk, um, in particular in relation to infrastructural scale projects, is really vital. Like That is our expertise and that is something that we can bring to this um, current condition. I think also, I mean, I attended a um, digital or virtual launch of the landscape Architecture end-of-year exhibition for, or mid-year exhibition and a semester exhibition at RMIT University yesterday, and it was just really good to get insights into how the students had to work. So obviously our members are also students and our profession are also students and academics. So I think that they've had to really respond to being able to teach um, virtually, not have that face-to-face contact, which is normally um, very central to working in a studio environment, both in practice and um, at the university. So I think that they've had to really adapt the way that they teach and the students have had to be really flexible in adapting to um, either, you know, different forms of remote learning. So I think that's certainly been evident to our profession. Um, I think, yeah, the I think what has also been really good... Is that people have really started to actually go outside more. So I think that, you know, you've seen definite reduction in vehicle use and un- unnecessary vehicle use in particular, more use of parks and creeks and paths. And so I think that's been really good to see that, um, that the public have almost remembered what's important and the communities have remembered what's important about going outside and, and, put, and for some people, um, having good access to open space and to exercise more. Um, to have you know less commute which means more time potentially with their family their community their friends um so i think that those sorts of things could really pay dividends for our profession in terms of a reinvestment in open space with careful consideration of how we have to you know try and prioritize not just public transport but also active modes of transport so bikes walking so i think certainly as i'm in melbourne i think the city of melbourne has brought forward a lot of their infrastructure investment to try and um, make, yeah, uh, take the opportunity of having less, less cars on the road to really expand footpaths, prioritise, um, cycling. So I think that, you know, health emergencies are inextricably linked to ecological emergencies and there is a direct correlation between biodiversity loss and, the, and, zoonotic um, diseases. So I think that, you know, we need to really use what is a very difficult situation and continues to be very difficult in most parts of the world and has you know, a massive risk in terms of some of the, um, you know, addressing of poverty in particular in Asia. So I think there's a lot of risk, but if we can flip that around and actually start to really join the dots in terms of why these things have happened, then I think it creates a massive opportunity for our profession to contribute to significant change.
0: Yeah, um, definitely, like, a lot of things to think about um, with what you're talking about, and um, I think it's really great to try to see the positives or not the positives but yeah as you say the opportunities um in this period and whilst it has been really difficult for a lot of people and there's been um you know a lot of um challenges that have happened globally it's been quite amazing to have seen everybody stop and have yeah this um this like moment in history to reconsider what we're Mm -hmm. doing Um, and yeah it would be fascinating to to look back on this period Um, and but yeah you're you're really right in um, all the comments that you're making about um, climate change and disease and um, you know really serious issues that have been around um, or you know impending for a long time sort of feels like uh, hopefully now is um, an opportunity for things to be acted upon but um, <laughs> we'll see um, it's, yeah I'm looking forward to visiting this park and seeing what happens at seafarers and good luck with your organising everything that's happening in oculus at the moment
1: thanks Bridget and thanks for um, yeah being a really good um, ambassador and communicator for the built environment
0: thank you thanks Claire for your time today I really enjoyed hearing a little bit more about landscape architecture with you This conversation ends our mini-series, Changing Cities, where we've heard from some really interesting women who are working in this field. Thank you to everyone who's been involved. We'll be coming back soon with another mini-series, which talks a little bit about themes such as nature, organic formations, and curves, all words that are synonymous with being Thanks for joining us again on The Doyen Interviews. Uh, I really appreciate the support, uh, especially through what's been a pretty interesting second lockdown period in Melbourne. So thanks for tuning in and thanks for joining me on this journey.